My guest today shares her perspective with a lot of grace and authenticity, from the doubts and hurdles she encountered as a new grad coming to the UK, to the choices and sacrifice led by motherhood seven years later. It's getting real, so stay tuned. been a small animal clinician for almost two decades now. I'm a GP and very often a locum and I've been working in various setups, whether in hospitals, small animal practices and even in management. I also worked in different countries in Europe and these multiple experiences have provided me with a broad perspective on the veterinary industry. So I've decided to create this podcast to discuss the challenges that we face as a profession as we're trying to revamp our culture. Welcome to Vet Vibes. My guest today is Theodora Boaru. She's from Romania, where she qualified in 2016. But as a new grad, she decided to move to the UK with her husband, in part searching for higher veterinary standards, but also because they both were looking for a better quality of life. She's worked in first opinion, um, achieved an internship in a big referral hospital and started a BSAVA certificate in small animal ophthalmology. She then became a mother. And so at the minute, she works as a locum covering out of hours and emergency shifts for the most part. Hi, Theodora. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Uh, I'm really excited at bringing your story out today. Hi, hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're very welcome. Um, so I just want to dive right in, and I'm interested in the similarities between uh, between us, uh, the fact that you are foreign, and what was the highlight for you to come and work in the UK, but also what was the biggest challenge for you? So I think overall coming into the UK has been one of the best experiences, one of the best decisions that we've ever taken. And it's been a positive experience overall. I always felt welcomed here in the UK as a foreign vet. And I felt supported to, by, by my colleagues. And I think um, I here in the UK, they have quite quite a good policy in in terms of foreign vets um the one of the biggest challenges that i had as a foreign vet was probably the level of training that i received in my home country and i always felt that uk graduates have a better day one skills list than i had so i always thoughts that I had to overcompensate um yeah so probably the skill set was was the main challenge that I had and then the second barrier was the language barrier because there were a lot of words that I didn't quite know their sense initially I mean I started in South Wales and the accent was slightly different from the academic English that I used to to listen to and that I I, I was used to. So there were 
I, I still laugh at this. It took me probably about six months to understand what fortnightly meant. It was it was one of those things that people kept saying to me, and I, I never ever had the time to Google it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, what does it mean? So yeah, all sorts of, of small language things that came across as as probably as I wasn't doing a good job because I wasn't I, I was feeling that I wasn't understanding those things. But um yeah, those two were probably the, the main challenges that I had as a foreign vet, to okay, be Okay, so more like language barrier. Yeah. What do you think is the main element that is missing in our curses? Ah, in a training. Um, if people would be able to get some more hands-on experience, like... I think shadowing is really important. So they have this IMS placing here. I think it's really, really, really useful. It's really hard to be able to do stuff until you have graduated. But then it's people learn by imitation as well. So it's really easy to go into a clinic and actually see shadow a couple of vomiting and diarrhea consults or shadow vaccinations and start to learn about the 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 diseases preventative care so i think from our training we're we're really missing the hands-on component everybody focuses on sci-fi things that in real life you find them just in referral centers but um it's, it's good to know that they exist but just don't focus on those. You need to start by taking small steps. And what do you think, because a lot of vets and probably nurses, but mostly vets I heard, they complain that they were ill-prepared to the reality of dealing with owners, you know, the social aspect of our job. Yeah. And and I think nowadays um, what is even more prominent is how ill-prepared we are to take care of our own mental health. Yeah. So what has been your experience in these two aspect in in your job how is that something that you're comfortable with or that's something that drains you or it's something that also you had to you know learn skills and and what well, develop skills just to be better at it yeah so I think managing a client's expectation is really 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 important what I tend to find is that new grads tend to promise the sun and the moon just to please the owners yeah so the first thing I'd say is managing clients expectations in terms of client communication there is another aspect that I I really struggle with in today's profession time management in a busy fast paced first opinion clinic is really, really, really important. And I don't think there's anyone that graduated and is able to manage their own time properly. What I think it would be helpful would be for new grads to tell 
clinic management that they need more time. They need more time to interpret bloods. They need more time to call referral centers. They need more time to ask a colleague for a second opinion. They need more time to, to, to do their admin work because it takes a lot longer than it takes for a 10-year qualified vet to do. So yeah, those two things I think <clears throat> would be really useful as well to, to be taught. In terms of mental health, I think people still treat it as a taboo, even if there is not one more vet everywhere. People don't actually want to acknowledge that they have a mental health problem until it's too late. I think small things like um, having like Sunday blues, um, like having anxiety before entering the, the, the work building, um, not sleeping at night and, and, and taking work home and trying to rethink the cases that you've had that in that day. I think those are small things that should be acknowledged and we should have a tick box, a tick list. And if you tick like more than one, I'd say, I think you're, you're in a real trouble. I think you need to open up and, and talk about these things and see what we can adjust in the environment to, to make things a little bit more comfortable. It's, it's like a very fine balance. The way I see it, it's, it's a very fine balance between still getting everyone out of their comfort zone in the early years, but still not really putting them off to wanting to be a vet because it's too overwhelming for them. And if the older generations didn't do this for us, I think it's our responsibility. Like, I'd say, they, they say that anything over five years is considered senior vet. I think it is a responsibility of senior vets to do it for, for the newer generations to, yeah. to pave things and to make things a little bit more as they as you wanted them to be for yourself yeah but it's not just for the the young graduate I think we have a responsibility for our community to take care of of each other regardless of what stage of your career you're at I agree but I, I really like your idea of a tick list you know because I think it's not just people being in denial, but just maybe not acknowledging, not knowing, not recognizing the, exactly. the, the symptoms of actually this is this is, doesn't work for me because exactly. we push through because it's how it's supposed to be because there is a, a certain level of stress that is accepted and also because it's chronic. And so yeah. because we've been in this for weeks, months, maybe years for some yeah. And it might be difficult to actually have this um, uh, reality check before it's too late. Whereas with your tick list, it sounds like a really practical and good good idea to maybe pick up symptoms and, and, and people um, in distress at an earlier stage. Yeah. Yeah. So would you like to tell us um, a little bit more about your internship, the before and after, and how it helps you to overcome what, what you call your imposter syndrome? 
Yes. So the decision to do a rotating internship came in a moment where I felt I was lost because I didn't feel I had the basics of internal medicine, the basics of surgery. And I felt that I was letting down my my patients. So I decided that I'd like to know what the gold standard looks like. So I was quite lucky to get a position in a big referral hospital as a rotating intern. And even if it was probably one of the hardest years I've experienced as a vet, it was the best decision that I took um, career-wise because I literally came out of that internship, a changed person. Mm -hmm. And you don't realize there and then how much you learn and how much confidence a rotating internship can give you. You probably realize it two or three years later when you look back and you think, oh, where did I get that courage to actually do things that I've never done before just by opening, opening a book or, or where did I get that um, connection, that, that network of vets and specialists? How did I get that confidence to pick up a phone and call a specialist to ask for an advice with a challenging with a challenging case? So all of those things came because I've, done the rotating internship yeah um on a previous occasion you also told me that you were a perfectionist and to the point that it could bring some anxiety to you but with you went through some sort of a process of building foundations and that helped you build your confidence and 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 after that uh, subsequently consequently yeah reducing your anxiety on the quality of care you deliver to your patient yes no I completely agree with this I the 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 way I work as a vet is I give 100% for the patients under my care and I can't sleep at night if I'm not sure that I've done 100% that I'm capable of doing for it for the patients under my care. So that was pre and post internship. And before the internship, I always felt I was missing something. Maybe I didn't include all the differentials. Maybe it would have had a different outcome. This this case might've had a different outcome in somebody else's hands. After the internship, after I've seen what the limits of our veterinary professions are after I've understood kind of a, a framework of how to structure a case, a gold standard for, for each of the main disciplines, I managed to get it straight into my head that if you do these steps, you can't miss so you can't miss the things that you that I previously worried about missing. So it definitely boosted my confidence and and um, made me a better vet. 
Um, that's really interesting. And mm. I think you're very thorough in in your approach as is reflected by your personal growth through your career your process oh, but also <laughs> but very I've, kind of you to say no no but I've seen how you work and I'm not saying that lightly um but and I understand that after your internship you were in, enthusiastic enough to consider some sort of specialization route so you started your um certificate yes yes that's right so during the internship I fell in love with eyes which is something that I didn't know much about (laughs) I mean I knew the main things like ulcer like glaucoma but I never ever knew the in-depth of them and I almost felt like it was the art side of our veterinary profession you never ever see two eyes that are, that look the same but anyway I fell in love with with the eyes and um I felt like I wanted to do the best I could for for the eyes and to be the best eye vet that I could be so I was aiming to get an ofta specific internship and maybe I, I was actually actively looking into like publishing a paper and going for a full residency to 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 become a diplomat but uh these things are are a total of a lot of hard work and a lot of years of commitment and the thing that I could do there and then after my internship was to start a BSAVA certificate in uh small animal ophthalmology which I I really enjoy and I am hoping I'll be able to continue that has been on pause now because I had a baby and you don't get much time to study or to go for lectures as much as I yeah, used to so um, yeah I'm, I'm hoping I'll resume that at some point and we'll be able to I'll be able to be the best vet mm-hmm. that I can for my for my eye patients. Is that of course um having a baby is 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 wonderful and and I think you are quite happy to have, you know, the opportunity to the time to to take care of your of your son and to see him grow and invest in, you know, these precious moments. Yeah. How do you feel do you, do you feel like maternity has been do you feel like there there was a need for a sacrifice somehow in your career or do you feel like you're very comfortable with resuming that certificate at a later stage or is it something that was easy for you mentally to combine the the demands of a of a of a career and maternity so i think only those who went through childcare, <laughs> only those who have small children or look after small children would, would know this thing. It's, it's a tremendous sacrifice. It doesn't matter if you're a mother or a father, they require a big chunk of your time. And the better you do it, the better people they'll become. So to answer your question, it's definitely been a sacrifice, 
but it's something that I've not done as a chore. It's something that I've done naturally. We planned for this child. We wanted to have this child. So of course, career came first before the child, after the child, (laughs) the children comes first and family comes first. And no, to me, no amount of professional work or or success can be compared with the with motherhood to be honest and the another thing that changed and probably other mothers or or fathers can relate to this was the work-life balance that I wanted to have after the child and I, I know it sounds strange but I felt I wanted to raise my son by example and before I had a child I was probably working some long hours or I felt burnout for quite a few a few on quite a few occasions after the child I had that feeling of do I want him to grow up expecting that this is the normal vets are overworked they're never home they always think of workload when they're spending their time with the family do I want him to think this of me or do I want to lead by example and be a good mother to him and be a a happy vet So it was kind of left or right decision that I had to make. And I had to be really honest with myself there and then. And of course, I I chose right. I chose to be a happy person and to Mm -hmm. be a good mother to him. And probably that's that's one of the main reasons that I'm 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 a locum at this at this point. Actually, my next question was, why do you think that nowadays locuming is the best option? Because it offers the best work-life balance um probably the yeah because you can manage your time financially it's sustainable even though there might be a trade-off in in our current economy um what do you think would be the main element to reverse the trend and to bring back vets into employment well it's really hard i think the nature of corporate employment, let's, let's just take a big thing. The nature of corporate employment, no matter if it's in the veterinary industry, if it's in finance, if it's in any other uh, department of our, of our society, I think it's just a fast-paced, um, profit-centered um mentality so if you want to bring vets back into the employment you need to be a lot more flexible and you need to pay them a lot more money than than what uh permanent employees are are paid right now locum work for me at least it's a lot more flexible than permanent employment I get to set my own terms, which 
I'm, I'm, I'm not ridiculous about my own terms. Like I don't charge extortionate amount of money. It's just, it gives me the right work-life balance so that I can work less hours, still pay the bills and still be able to enjoy the time off that I have. I want to go for swimming lessons. I go for swimming lessons. I've got the time to do so. I'm not mentally burdened with uh, workload. I've got the finances to do so. I get to enjoy my little one. If he, if I want to take him into a park, I'm, I'm physically and mentally there with him, for him. I'm enjoying this, this time of his life. So I think flexibility is the key and better paid for, for especially mm-hmm. for our nurses. I, 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 I don't understand how, how they can make things work with the amount of pay that they get. And then for our first opinion vet colleagues. Yeah. I think one thing I also noticed, um, and it's by comparison to what I have observed in Sweden, um, and it was working for a big hospital, uh, a corporate big hospital, Mm. but somehow they managed to preserve the quality of life of their employees. And one main element, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of different aspects to it. But one main element that I really liked was to have overlapping shifts. So it allows, you know, the, the, the department to constantly be covered, at least mm. with one vet. And they also know when the lunch break is yeah. because it, it slides across between, I don't know, 12 and four. Um, but you're going to have a vet starting at 8 a.m., finishing at five, lunch break at 12. And then the second vet starts at 11, finishing at eight, lunch break at two. And yeah. so there is always someone there. The lunch break lunch break are guaranteed yeah and and no one stays behind yeah because because you you work your hours and it does it's very simple but effective and it it's just you know reduces so much pressure to me what you're describing is a properly staffed clinic that has the capacity to take the overflow has the capacity to um cover that surgical a procedure that's not quite going to plan has the capacity to to help and nurture a new grad that's probably not as fast consult wise as a 10 year old graduate vet so yeah I, I think that's that's a very fair point if we'd have the proper staff but then it, but- it all comes down to the finances if you pay more people you from what from what I saw, it was not necessarily uh, properly staffed because that's why I was there. <laughs> they were looking mm. for locum uh, because they, this was during the holidays. So they had a lot of gaps to fill, but they adjust the workload accordingly. And they have people vets consulting, they have surgeon operating, but they also have three to four vets dedicated to drain emergencies yeah. because they know that's what how much they're going to get during the summer because yeah. a lot of pra- practices nearby are closed. 
So they have a team dedicated just to drain the overflow. So that doesn't, that is not added workload to someone exactly. with already an up list or, so it's not just the fact that they properly staffed. I think they, they have understood, okay, where are, you know, the, the, the critical points um, that we need to address, but how can we do it without adding pressure on, on our staff and, and it works. Yeah. No, I agree. It's a very good model to find. And I think if we, not not necessarily the UK, but if the Western veterinary profession, because in the US is, is as bad as it is in the UK staff-wise, if we were to acknowledge here and now that this is not right, hey, look at the Northern countries, they've got a better model. How about we copy that model? I'm pretty sure we would achieve a lot more than if we just pretend it's not happening. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually funny because that's the topic of the next episode. But Theo, before we finish, um, I would like to circle back to one specific and beautiful lesson uh, you motherhood uh, brought you and that you shared with me the other day. Um, you said that it helped you change perspective on mistakes. So could you please um, elaborate that once again? Yes, yes. I think I'm very sensitive about mistakes, to be honest. I fully embrace them. And this has been something that I've accepted only after I had my child because I've learned that the mistakes help you learn a lot faster than the the theory to be honest um and i think in our profession there's like a taboo about making mistakes and nobody talks about this and i think this needs to change i think we need to be open about this i know we 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 had a conversation a few weeks ago about having an audit after something doesn't go according to plan and I I think this is a brilliant idea if we could have some sort of feedback and 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 learn from our mistakes yeah that would help us grow as individuals and as a profession yeah I I agree and um, that's definitely something I was very sensitive to especially over the past few months where I had a couple of cases um, not going as expected and being a bit more curious I think a lot of especially in the younger generations of vets and nurses they're much more open about you know a healthy mistake culture but I think it's still dragging to be the right approach is still dragging to be implemented at the practical level and again I think bigger hospital I think bigger hospital generally work better because you have more people in management and more people undertaking side projects and throwing ideas um and I'm not saying that smaller practices can't do can't do well that's not that but globally generally speaking that's what I have seen as a locum um but it's 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 still not ubiquitous or or generally the rule to look at mishaps, mistakes, and 
an action changes for them to be prevented in the future. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. This this needs to change. And I think because we don't embrace mistakes, there are a lot of unrealistic professional expectations, both from management, from colleagues, from clients. Um, you know, I, I, I was talking to, to you about imaging, like comparing this subject to human medicine. It's just shocking what's happening in our profession. I mean, human ultrasonographers shadow for a few years a senior colleague and then they're being supervised by another senior colleague for a decent period of time while they do it and only then after they're sure on their own skills they're allowed to perform ultrasounds on their own in our profession with with imaging you're expected to go to one or two days of cpd open a book and just do it and get it right yeah i mean I honestly don't want to open other subjects like surgery or emergency and critical care, but I know we're all facing this unrealistic expectation of being right all the time. And this all just adds to yeah. the low self-esteem and imposter syndrome. You're very right. It's so against nature. It is. We've, yeah. we've not even realized this as, as a family until I had my little one. Failure is normal. It's the fastest way to learn. Um, thank you so much, Theodora, for, for sharing all your um, experience and your story with me today. And wherever your career take, takes you next, um, well, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for giving me this opportunity. And I really hope, I, I think your podcast will make a huge impact. Next time, I'll bring a clinical director from Sweden who was awarded Best Leader to discuss her approach of the Swedish model. So I hope you like this content and to make sure you don't miss out, don't forget to subscribe. In the meantime, like, share and spread the love. Bye.